Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 211. It's not often that I'll tell a personal story about an FBI agent. This one is worth telling. It's the story of Don Adams, and it's also the story of a man with a high level of integrity that dared speak out and tell the truth about what happened in the Joseph Miltier story. And he would know because he was right there at ground zero, right before, right during, and right after that fateful day on November 22nd. He knows exactly what happened with the investigation of Miltier when it comes to the president's assassination. Agent Adams, in his retirement, wrote a book, and it's titled From an Office Building with a High-Powered Rifle. I purchased a lot of my JFK books secondhand. When I happened to get a copy of his book, inside the cover I found a note, affectionately penned to one of its prior owners. The note was dated October 11th, 2012. It was an autographed message handwritten by Don Adams himself. It was addressed to Ron and (laughs) sadly for me, not to Jeff. I would have liked to have met this man and shook his hand and said, thank you. It's too late for that now because Don Adams passed away in 2015 at the age of 83. But as I look at that almost perfect handwriting on the inside cover, I see the man come alive just a little more in my own mind. I'm just glad that we had this one courageous FBI agent at this very crucial moment in time who was willing to tell a story after the fact of what he saw and experienced in the Miltier investigation. As the publisher of Adam's book would say in his introduction, It's a story of connivance, deceit, and distortion by federal officials, both before and after the assassination. And it was done to deflect inquiry from its natural course and affect its outcome, somehow, some way. He would go on to say that Miltier, I believe, knew. He knew through the shadowy threads that blind the abyss of military, government, and social economic espionage, a menagerie of competing interests that many times employ the same double, triple, and quadruple agents. Creations who have no idea whose water they are carrying and what the whole shebang is really all about. Those words were written by Chris Milligan, the publisher at Trine Day, the publishers of Don Adams' book. I think they accurately reflect the subterranean network that we are about to enter in the episodes that follow as we tell the full story of Joseph Miltier and the right-wing networks that existed in an interconnecting weave in our society and in those days. The story of Don Adams presented today is a little out of order in all of this Miltier storytelling, and there is quite a bit more on its way in the upcoming episodes you really get a sense of how deeply connected he was to the right-wing militancy and to characters already known to you, some that will surprise and astonish you. 
So trust me, and I hope this out-of-order episode will only whet your appetite to learn more about who Miltier really was. And the story that I am going to tell you today is essentially the story that comes straight out of Don Adams' book. I encourage you to go buy it. It's a well-detailed and fascinating account, and it appears to be a genuine and objective book on this topic from about the only man who had the only true bird's-eye view of what happened with the Miltier investigation and equipment. So here goes. And without further ado, let's listen to episode 211 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Don Adams was a rookie FBI agent in 1963. And while he himself would say that he only played a small part in this epic drama of the JFK assassination, truth is, he exposed something that was much more sinister and fundamental to the cover-up of the crime. As Adams would explain in the introduction to the book, over the years, as he began to study this topic, he found inconsistencies, discrepancies, and outright forgeries in the documents related to the Miltier investigation by the FBI. That's right, outright forgeries. And this is an FBI agent telling you this about his own organization's documents. And that includes documents that were prepared right there at the same time Adams himself was investigating the case. This is why he knows, because he was there. Perhaps what might have been the hardest thing for Adams to swallow is that he learned about crucial information that was withheld from him as an agent, an agent that was investigating a planned assassination of the president. And he was doing it just weeks before the assassination actually took place. Through his own critical eye, looking backwards, he would say that it was a combination of inexperience and idealism that blinded him at the time. He was not unlike many young men just starting out in the law enforcement profession and in the times that he lived. Many that were probably blinded by the actions necessary to have a successful career at Hoover's FBI. Surely that happened to so many. But as he goes on to say, having lived it and having a lifetime to reflect, he is now convinced that the official investigation was purposefully compromised. And even worse, that the assassination itself could have been prevented. Adams also reiterates as well what we know already, that the Secret Service and the FBI had prior warnings and that they were in possession of a taped conversation from November 9th, 1963, where Joseph Miltier revealed a plan to Willie Somerset to shoot the president with a high-powered rifle from an office building. Adams would go further with his assertions stating that both agencies had received specific information that this could happen in Dallas on November 22nd. Perhaps more importantly, he came to believe that the FBI's overall investigation was compromised from the top down, beginning with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. 
Adams would say this. Within the FBI at the time, Hoover's authority was unquestioned, and his prerogative to direct the focus of any investigation was sacrosanct. Those are Adams' words, and we should dwell on that one word, sacrosanct. Adams alternately concludes that the real question is how many persons inside and outside of the Bureau were affected by the slide into corruption that resulted from Hoover's compromise of the core values within the FBI. The slide of core values that was attributable to his leadership style. And ultimately, what effect did that have on the truthfulness of the JFK investigation? Adams, of course, cannot answer all of these questions in their totality, but his story undoubtedly answers some very specific questions around what happened with the investigation of Joseph Miltier just before and just after the assassination and of his meticulous dissection of the FBI documents and at least one Secret Service document after the fact and all of those documents he would have had firsthand knowledge regarding the facts. Well, his meticulous dissection of them does but one thing. It exposes a terrible investigative cover-up regarding the Miltier case that one can only surmise about. But one thing is for sure, it took more than a single person to do. It makes you tremble a bit and perhaps even think that you can't trust any document coming from the FBI in the shadow of the JFK investigation. Well, whether that part is true or not, one thing is for sure. You probably can't trust a lot of what's in these related to the Miltier file. Don Adams got the bug to be in law enforcement when he was only 14 years old. His father was in law enforcement in Ohio where they grew up and he would arrange for Don's first ride in a police car at that young and tender age. From then on, he had a connection. His dad knew Deke LaRoche, who some considered at the time to be the number three man in the FBI. Adams would graduate from high school, start college, drop out, and then make his way into the military, just in time to serve in Korea during the Korean conflict. Upon his return, he would spend some time as a salesman and complete his college studies, marry his sweetheart, and start a family. All that before he eventually applied to and was accepted to the FBI Academy. He had done some wandering in his own life, and yes, he was a little older at 32 when he wound up at the FBI a little older and a little wiser than the average rookie at the FBI Academy. But still, he was a rookie. He would complete his training in Quantico, Virginia, and at the old post office in Washington, D.C., and it was rigorous. There was a lot to be learned about federal laws and statutes under which the FBI would be working. The schooling was various, and not only did it include understanding the law, it also included studying live cases and gaining specialized training on things like driving at high speeds and how you might enter a building if you were chasing a fugitive. And of course, there was extensive firearms training. As Adams would attest to, the training at the FBI Academy was top-notch. In a fitting bit of poetry, Adams, while he was attending the Academy, actually went to a graduation for one of the existing FBI Academy classes at the time one where President John F. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy were present. And of course, along with them was FBI Director Hoover and his second-in-command, Clyde Tolson. 
It was there that he experienced firsthand the way that the internal group at the FBI worshipped Hoover. If Hoover would stand, they would stand immediately. If Hoover sat, they sat immediately. It was like a litany in church. In Adams' words, Hoover was the patriarch and everybody was deferential to him. Adams would say that it was common knowledge within the Bureau that many of the changes which Bobby Kennedy had instituted since becoming the Attorney General were changes that made Hoover furious. A great example of that was a grovel over the FBI dress code. Hoover insisted that agents dress in white shirts, ties, and suit coats, especially when in the Justice Building. Adams tells a rather famous story that relates to some of the men who were working undercover on the mafia breakup under Kennedy. They were all at the Justice Department one day for a meeting with Bobby, and Bobby had asked some of these undercover guys to take their jackets off and roll up their sleeves. Apparently, Bobby walked out for just a moment, and Hoover happened to have walked in unannounced and saw the agents were there. Ties pulled down and their sleeves rolled up, and Hoover told them all to get up and leave immediately. It was one of the many petty battles which the two men would engage in with one another. When Adams completed his training at the academy, he got the nod to make his way down south to the Atlanta office. That would be Adams' first office assignment, and it was not unusual that agents were moved around to different offices, particularly from time to time in their early years. He would leave for Atlanta the day after New Year's, 1963. He fully anticipated that this would be his first assignment, temporary in nature, probably lasting one or two years. So he and his wife settled into an apartment on the northwest side of the city of Atlanta. Within three weeks of being assigned to Atlanta, the special agent in charge of the Atlanta office, Jim McMahon, would call Adams in and explain to Adams that he was about to be transferred to the Thomasville, Georgia office. For those of you that don't know the geography of Georgia or Atlanta, Atlanta is the largest city in Georgia, and it's in the northern part of the state. And Thomasville is a small little town not too far from the Florida border in the southwest corner of the state, not too far from Tallahassee. These two towns are about as far away as you can get from one another in Georgia without being in another state. Thomasville is a tiny place, and there was one senior resident FBI agent already there, and his name was Royal A. McGraw. The Thomasville location was responsible for nine counties around that area in southwestern Georgia. As Adams was preparing to make his way down to the Thomasville office, one of the agents in the Atlanta office of the FBI would reveal to Adams that Adams was not McMahon's first choice. Three other agents before him had been offered the job, and all had rejected it. Yet McMahon made it seem to Adams like he was the top pick. Perhaps that's Management 101, but when Adams found out, he actually got mad about it and confronted McMahon with it. He asked McMahon whether other agents had been offered the position, and McMahon said no. But Adams knew better. What he got back from McMahon was a basic lie. McMahon denied that he had offered and had been turned down a total of three times. But it was already known to Adams at the time that the other agents had turned the role down. 
and mostly because of the reputation of the senior agent McGraw in Thomasville. McMahon would eventually admit, upon some additional questioning by Adams, that the men had refused, but McMahon insisted that each time it was for personal reasons. It was a circumstance that took Adams for a pause because special agent in charge McMahon had not been completely truthful with Adams. Whether that was just McMahon's method of management or not, it created a suspicion when it was clear he was not being truthful. This agent McGraw down in Thomasville was quite an odd duck, requiring extremely odd routines, such as when he set a time for a meeting. He would better be there right on time and not five minutes or 10 minutes early or five minutes or 10 minutes late. Neither one of those was no good. Adams, who showed up for the first meeting with Royal McGraw, was actually 10 minutes early. McGraw was visibly angry and shook him, dressing him down and asking him if he understood his instructions. As Adams would attest to, everything went downhill between the two of them over the next 18 months. Adams would experience some of the suspicions harbored by the locals about somebody who was down south but from up north. As McGraw took him around to meet the local sheriffs, Adams would recall an interaction with A.E. White, who was the sheriff of Bainbridge, Georgia, a man famous for wearing a white cowboy hat and leaning back in his chair with his cowboy boots propped on top of his desk. Adams was headed to the bathroom in the good sheriff's office when he could hear in the background McGraw telling the sheriff to be careful dealing with Adams because he was Catholic, and he was a Republican, and he was a Yankee. It was Adams' first revelation that this man McGraw had more allegiance to the locals than he did to his brethren in the FBI. It was a tough relationship from the very beginning, but Adams used the discipline he learned in the armed forces to respect authority and take it without much outward response. As Adams would put it, after 10 months on the job, he would receive a call that would change his life. It was dinner time, and the date was Wednesday, November 13, 1963. Agent Adams was at home, and the phone rang. It was Special Agent in Charge McMahon who was on the other end of the phone. McMahon would tell Adams that he had received a call from a Secret Service agent in the Atlanta office asking for FBI assistance. The reason the Secret Service called the FBI on this particular matter was the fact that the Secret Service had no agents in South Georgia, but the FBI did. As it was described to Adams, the matter was a top priority and that Adams was to devote as much time as was necessary until this investigation, one that he was about to learn about, was completed. McMahon then told Adams that a reliable informant with both the Miami Police Department and the Miami FBI had furnished information about an October 1963 meeting of a radical right-wing hate group in a hotel room in Indianapolis, Indiana. According to the informant, he and three other men had privately discussed a plot to kill President John F. Kennedy. The informant said that one of the four men in the discussion was a sniper in World War II, and he was willing to sacrifice his life to kill the president. There was a plan to have the sniper secret himself in one of the palm trees along Collins Avenue, 
as Kennedy was to fly in to Miami. He would shoot the president as the president's car passed by. There was a backup plan that was discussed, apparently, if the Florida plan did not work. This time, the hit would take place in Washington, D.C., and part of the plan was to rent an apartment or an office located behind Lafayette Park, a location that was directly across from the White House. The informants said that they were going to use a large-caliber scoped rifle on a tripod, and they would attempt to shoot the president as he walked around the White House grounds. McMahon would go on to relate that the informant had contacted the Miami Police Department, who then notified the Secret Service. According to McMahon, the principal subject was a Joseph Adams Miltier, located in Quitman, Georgia. McMahon then told Adams that he wanted him to conduct an extensive background investigation on Miltier as quickly as possible. When the investigation was completed, McMahon said that all of the information should be turned over directly to him. He would then submit the information directly to the Secret Service. He then instructed Adams not to discuss this matter with anyone. On this point, Adams objected, indicating that it was almost impossible on this kind of a review not to discuss this with others. Adams would call out Quitman Police Chief Bill Elliott, a man he thought he could trust and a man he thought he could count on to help him get information on Miltier on a discreet fashion. Hearing that, McMahon was dubious and he asked about Elliot, but after some conversation on the matter, McMahon agreed. As long as Adams could gain comfort that Elliot would keep the information confidential. Any of you who have ever gone through one of these small towns in Georgia knows how small these towns really are. And pretty much everyone there knows everybody else. It's like that all over in the rural areas of the country. Adams would go to Quitman the next day and he would meet with Sheriff Elliott. He would make his way over to the Miltier residence. Although Miltier was not there that day, and neither was his bus, that famous VW bus that was actually owned by his girlfriend, a bus with lots of conservative placards pasted all over it. It was during these inquiries that Adams learned himself about Miltier's girlfriend, a woman named C.C. Cofield, who actually lived in Valdosta, a town just east of Quitman. Still on the trail, Adams would make his way to Valdosta and meet with the police chief there and continue his search. This went on for several days, and Adams was never able to catch up or find this man Miltier. In fact, they were unsuccessful in even locating a photo of him. Adams even went down to the Loudoun County Jail, where they searched vociferously through the fingerprint files. Eventually, it was Eureka. They found a fingerprint file on Miltier in an old basement file cabinet. It was after midnight, but their unrelenting efforts had paid off. The Lowndes County Jail allowed Adams to commandeer the fingerprint card, and they were still on the trail at about 2 o'clock a.m., they would return now to the Cofield residence, and by that time, both of Miltier's and Cofield's vehicles were there, a Volvo and a Volkswagen bus. They would surreptitiously record the license plate numbers and detailed description of the cars. And in all of the reconnaissance gathering around Quitman, Adams had learned that every Saturday Miltier would go downtown in order to pass out 
hate literature. And so, only three days into this manhunt, Adams would arrange to be downtown on that next Saturday morning in an effort to spot Miltier and get photos of him. Sure enough, he was there, and Adams moved in close, actually engaging him in some conversation. It didn't take long before Miltier was telling Adams how much he hated the Kennedys and, and the things that needed to happen to them. But as Adams would say, Miltier was still quite careful not to make a direct threat on the Kennedy lives. Miltier would hand Adams some of the material, and this material was no doubt a confirmation that Miltier was a radical segregationist. He hated blacks, Yankees, and many others. Adams had gathered enough information to make his first report, and he would return to Thomasville and prepare a rough draft of what he had found. He included all of the materials he had gathered from all the sources, along with the copies of the hate brochures that he had received directly from Miltier himself. The research was ready to be delivered. Adams would jump in his car and drive all the way back to Atlanta, hand-carrying the documents to the FBI office to be turned over to McMahon. What Adams assumed would happen next is that his report would immediately be routed to the FBI headquarters in Washington and delivered to the Secret Service as well, with the original report and the documents remaining in the hands of the FBI office in Atlanta. What Adams didn't know is that the Atlanta FBI office had conducted a previous investigation of Miltier in the autumn of 1962, just about a year before, and they had filed it under the title Racial Matters. And who was it that conducted that review? Well, if it wasn't good old Royal A. McGraw, with the assistance of Quitman Chief of Police, Bill Elliott. Why was it that Adams wasn't told of this previous investigation when he was sent down to do this work? At no time was that prior investigation ever mentioned to him by either McMahon or McGraw. And moreover, McGraw was usually a stickler for understanding exactly what his junior agent Adams was doing and where he was at all times. But then, all of a sudden, McGraw was not interested in knowing where he was. Meaning, over those couple of days that Adams was assigned by McMahon to investigate Miltier. What's even more strange is that Adams' initial discussions about Miltier with Sheriff Elliott, a person he thought he could trust at that time, were clearly disingenuous. Elliott in no way indicated that there had been a previous investigation launched against Miltier and that he had been involved in it even though Adams had confided in him about what was currently happening. Later, and looking back at it all, Adams would say that you could conclude only one thing, and that is that there was collusion between Agent McMahon, Agent McGraw, and Sheriff Elliott. Collusion to withhold substantive information from Adams about Miltier. Adams would say that there was no way to determine with any absolute certainty as to why they made this decision, but there is no debating that they did. And ultimately, all three of them, in some way, conspired to keep the previous investigation private. 
Years later, when Adams was doing research for his own book, he would come across documentation that the fingerprint card of Miltier that he had found in the Lowndes County Jail and that he had included in the report materials had indeed made its way through the system and up to the FBI National Headquarters. There was evidence now that the card had made its way to the FBI Identification Division, and that should have been evidence enough that the rest of this file related to that initial report went to Washington as well. But in fact, the rest of the file could not be found anywhere. Immediately after the assassination, Adams stationed himself down in Quitman, checking on Miltier's house three times a day. Quitman Police Chief Elliott and also the Valdosta Sheriff were doing the same thing, but Miltier was nowhere to be found. Then late in the afternoon on Wednesday, November 27th, five days after the assassination, Adams would observe a VW bus at Cofield's address. C.C. Coalfield, as you recall, is the so-called girlfriend of Miltier, who lived in Valdosta, and her house was where Miltier could frequently be found. Bureau procedure would not allow Adams to confront a potentially dangerous figure such as Miltier in this circumstance without a backup. Soon, Miltier was forced to leave surveillance of the house and get to a payphone where he would call the resident FBI agent in Valdosta, an agent named Ken Williams. Williams was then on his way, and the two of them would meet up at a nearby location, and Adams would then fill Williams in on the situation. Next, they would quickly hurry back to Cofield's house, but by that time, her VW bus was gone. Adams would go ahead and approach the house. Cofield would answer the door, and Adams would confront her, and she would tell them that, Miltier was on his way to Atlanta, and of course, she said he wouldn't be back for quite a while. At this moment, in Adams' words, it became a wild chase. Ken Williams, the second agent, and Adams were in separate cars, and they jumped back in them and would both race at high speeds up the highway on their way to Atlanta in hot pursuit of Miltier. They traveled about 54 miles north toward Atlanta before they finally spotted the VW bus on the highway. Adams would speed up, cut in front of Miltier, and then slow down, forcing him to come to a stop. Once the cars were off the side of the road, Adams would jump out of his car and would direct Miltier to get out of his. He'd check for a weapon, and then Adams got on his radio and called for a Georgia Highway Patrol and a tow truck to take the VW bus back to the Valdosta Highway Patrol Post. In typical Southern fashion, Miltier said he was hungry and said he needed to eat. So Adams allowed him to take a small paper sack with him as he got into the car with Adams. Ken Williams got into his own car and followed behind, separately. They would then drive south, back to the Valdosta office, where the resident FBI agent Ken Williams was stationed. Miltier had walked into the station with a paper bag, and it turned out that he had a tape recorder in it. Brazenly, he would then demand that the conversation not be taped. Adams assured him that they were not taping the conversation. <laughs> but before they started the interview, in a bit of an ironic twist, Adams figured out that Miltier himself was attempting to tape the discussion as he had his own tape recorder 
stuffed inside that brown paper bag. Adams and Williams found it before the discussion happened. Years later, Adams would remark how naive he was to have let Miltier bring a paper bag with him without checking it, and especially because Miltier was known to have routinely armed himself with a thirty-eight pistol. What happened next is the source of great controversy within the FBI's handling of the circumstance. Agent McMahon had given Adams very specific instructions after the assassination. He would say if and when Adams caught up with Miltier, he was to ask him very specifically five questions and five questions only. And those five questions were as follows. Number one, with whom had he made contact recently? Number two, had he been to the Constitution Party's National Convention? Number three, what were the organizations with which he was affiliated? Number four, had he any knowledge of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama on September 15, 1963? And finally, perhaps the most important, number five, had he ever made any threats to assassinate the president? Or had he participated in a plot to kill President Kennedy? Adams would interview Miltier until the early morning hours of Thursday, November 28th. And unfortunately, as I just stated, it was a rather limited set of questions that could be asked of Miltier by Adams. And since Miltier was not under arrest, photographs and fingerprints could not be taken. What were Miltier's responses to these five questions? Well, They were predictable, and here is how Adams recounted them. Question one, with whom had he been in contact lately? Well, he told Adams that he had gone to Dallas, Texas in June of 1963 in an attempt to persuade Dan Smoot of the Dan Smoot Report to run as a candidate for vice president on the Constitution Party ticket in 1964. He said he had no other business in Dallas during his visit there. We'll get more into who Dan Smoot was in another episode. The second question was whether Miltier had been to the Constitution Party's national convention. He answered yes. And Miltier said that the convention was held in Indianapolis, Indiana, on October 18th through the 20th, 1963. He went as a guest of Curtis B. Dahl, former son-in-law of the late President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He traveled with two friends, Willie Somerset of Miami, Florida, and Lee McLeod of Atlanta. We'll get into more about Lee McLeod a little later, and Somerset too. Question number three, as to what organizations with which he was affiliated? Well, Miltier answered that he considered himself a non-dues-paying member of the White Citizens Council of Atlanta, Georgia, and that he was a member of the Congress of Freedom and the Constitution Party. He said that during April 1963, he attended a national convention in New Orleans of the Congress of Freedom. Adams would be chomping at the bit to ask him if he was a member of the Q. Klux Klan. Adams had been told that previously, but the orders from Agent McMahon back in Atlanta precluded the asking of that question. On the fourth question as to whether he had any knowledge of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, well, he denied any knowledge of that bombing, (laughs) of course. We'll get into that more a little later. 
And as to the final and perhaps most important question of all, had he ever made any threats to assassinate the president or had he participated in a plot to kill President Kennedy? Well, he emphatically denied ever doing such a thing and said he never heard anyone else make such threats. He said that he never made any threats against anyone before the assassination took place. He also said that he didn't know, nor to his knowledge, was he ever in the presence of Lee Harvey Oswald or Jack Ruby. Now, I'm not sure here, but as far as I can tell, that was not a question that was allowed to be asked. So why did he volunteer that? Eventually, in the early morning hours, Miltier was released, and that was the last time that Don Adams ever saw Miltier in person. What Adams did not know at the time was that Miltier had been caught on tape in Miami on November 9th, telling informant Willie Somerset that the president was going to be assassinated through the use of a high-powered rifle fired from an office building, and that an individual would be picked up shortly thereafter in connection with the crime in order to throw the public off. And on November 9th, Miltier would also say that the whole thing is in the works. And that tape was never heard before the assassination by Agent Adams. It was never used in the interrogation of Miltier because it was unknown to the very agent that was sent to question the suspect. Again, here we are faced with a clear set of circumstances that lead to conclusions more nefarious. Both the FBI and the Secret Service were well aware of the Miami Miltier tape, and for God's sakes, this involved the president. Yet they sent a rookie agent to track Miltier down, not the more experienced senior agent in the office, McGraw, and they gave him clear instructions to limit his questioning to five simple questions without the benefit of that tape. Because answering question number five without admitting anything and then having that tape in hand, well, it would have been game over for Mr. Miltier in any other law enforcement circumstance. They would have held him and the search for conspirators would have begun. The cat would have been out of the bag. But not so on this killing. The narrative was, by that time, some five days or so after the assassination, already set in stone. It was Lee Harvey Oswald. Period. Adams would prepare a written report in rough draft form and also a teletype for the FBI headquarters. He would dictate both by telephone to a stenographer in the Atlanta FBI office that same morning. Not surprising, as Adams began to research all of this in later years, there would be no evidence that this second report he prepared, which documents his dramatic rundown of Miltier and questioning afterward, after the assassination, well, there is no evidence that it ever reached the appropriate individuals in the chain of command. The documents he prepared had seemingly disappeared, and there are no copies to be found in any of these files that Adams searched at the National Archives. But one thing Adams did know is that at least... Part of the reports were submitted. In the follow-up research that Adams engaged in, years later, some of the information that Adams knew he, and he alone gathered, showed up in December 1963 reports filed by FBI Special Agent Charles Harding and Ken Williams 
And then some more in a January 1964 FBI report filed by Agent Royal McGraw. There were only smatterings of his original report that those men incorporated into their own. But at the same time, in 1963, Adams had no reason to doubt that his investigations were complete and accurate or that any of the appropriate bureau procedures had not been observed. As luck would have it, in June of 1964, Don Adams was transferred to the Dallas office of the FBI. Right there in that office was the Kennedy Room, so to speak. A room chock full of evidence that the FBI had gathered locally on the Kennedy assassination. It was right there in that room that Adams would watch the Zapruder film with two other senior Dallas FBI agents. He would describe it as a viewing that was quite different than looking at any of the still photographs that had been available up to the time or even on a regular TV screen. It was clear to him that the president had been hit from the front. Almost immediately, the two senior agents advised him to tread lightly with those kind of statements. But Adams was bitten, and a few days later, he went over to the Texas School Book Depository, and this time he was accompanied by two other but different senior FBI agents. They all went to the sixth floor, and again, other things were apparent. It was pretty clear to Adams that the best shot would have been down Houston Street. Given that, why didn't he take that shot? Adams thought to himself. Why did he wait until they were on Elm? Well, it was clear to him that they were in the middle of a sniper's nest in a kill zone. And perhaps because he had been to Korea, and fought there, he too was entirely skeptical that Oswald could have fired three shots that accurately within a seven-second period. Again, the two agents, and again, they were different agents this time that Adams was with, cautioned him similarly, as he put it, to keep any unorthodox observations to himself. The same message that the other two senior agents had given him when they were watching the Zapruder film. He would get transferred out of Dallas and spend some time in Lubbock, Texas, and then return to Texas, and then return to the Dallas office in 1967. And his time in Dallas would reveal some of the underpinnings of the stormy relationship between the FBI and the local law enforcement authorities, particularly the Dallas Police Department. One of the biggest issues was the fact that Agent Vince Drain arbitrarily took what became known as Oswald's rifle out of the Dallas Police Department's control and flew it directly to the FBI headquarters in Washington. And there was a second incident that Adams tells the story about where an FBI agent essentially stole the good police work of a local Dallas police detective and then was bold enough to submit the work to the chief of police in Dallas and take credit for it. It was a book identifying all the thieves living in North Texas and especially in the Dallas area. Once the Dallas police realized it had not been prepared by the FBI and in fact stolen from one of their local detectives, the FBI became persona non grata in the eyes of the Dallas Police Department. Most of us listening to the podcast know that Gordon Shanklin was a special agent in charge of the Dallas FBI office. He is a man who nowadays is most famous for giving the order to James Hostie to destroy Oswald's note the one that he had delivered to the FBI office prior to the assassination. Adams tells an unrelated story, but it reinforces the fact that Shanklin was eager to act and to destroy records if he felt it was necessary. 
an agent had taken out a car against bureau policy and gotten into an accident. So in order to cover up the event, someone in the Dallas FBI office asked a local informant with access to a repair shop if he would fix the car. Long story short, Adams drove that car after it was repaired and the hood flew off, injuring him. Adams would subsequently need back surgery and have significant workers' compensation claims. But in order to cover up as far back as the original misdeed relating to the original unauthorized use of the car, Gordon Shanklin would go as far as destroying Adams' medical documents and lying to him about workers' compensation claims for over two years. The emotional distress and economic distress that Adams felt as a result of all of that led him to file a FOIA request for his own records. But since it involved Shanklin and since it involved destruction of evidence, he went for the mother load. Rather than just asking on the FOIA request for his own medical records that were destroyed by Shanklin, Adams asked for any records dating back to 1960 that had been destroyed by Shanklin. It was a clear shot across the bow that he wanted documents, not only about his own circumstance, but he also wanted to see anything regarding destruction of the Oswald note and perhaps anything else related to the JFK assassination that might have been related to that incident. His FOIA request would finally result in the receipt of a 27-page memo from Clarence Kelly to Attorney General Edward Levi about the assassination. The memo addressed Shanklin and the sworn statements he had made about the missing note. You now have to fast forward about 30 years, and we get to 1992, right around the Christmas holidays. And Adams began to read a copy of High Treason, which was co-authored by Robert Groden and Harrison Livingstone. It was there that he would find this startling revelation with the Miami Police Department and the Secret Service and the fact that the FBI had a tape of Miltier discussing the plot to kill the president. And they had it several weeks in advance of the assassination. And they knew it before Adams had been assigned to investigate Miltier. Reading on in that same book, Adams would come across the famous Alkin Six photograph, who many people believe contains a picture of Joseph Miltier right there in front of the school book depository just seconds after the shooting. Adams would describe his feelings at that moment, and he would simply say, I can't put into words how I felt. And remember, Adams was the agent searching frantically after the assassination around Miltier's small town of Quitman and in Valdosta, and no luck at all in identifying Miltier's whereabouts at that time. But he knew that Miltier was not in Quitman, and he was not in Valdosta. His exhaustive searches at that moment in those towns convinced Adams of that. In that moment was born a quest to find the truth about just what really happened in this Miltier circumstance. Adams would observe almost immediately that agents back in the Atlanta office had forged a critical document, probably by McMahon or under his direction. Shortly after the assassination, the FBI had sent a teletype from its Atlanta office to the FBI headquarters, indicating that they had verified that Miltier was in Quitman, Georgia, on November 22nd. The document is timestamped just five hours after the assassination. The absurdity of this timestamp became even more apparent 
when you hear Adams describe the circumstance. As we have said previously, there were only two agents assigned to that area in South Georgia, three if you count Ken Williams in Valdosta, and they were Agent Adams and Agent McGraw. Adams had frequent surveillance on Miltier's house and equipment and his girlfriend's place as well in Valdosta. Adams had also been in contact virtually the whole period from the assassination until they ran Miltier down on November 27th. And during that time, Adams kept Agent McGraw informed as to exactly what he was doing in the search for Miltier. And so Agent McGraw knew that Adams had been all over Thomasville and Valdosta looking for Miltier, including his house and his girlfriend's house. If McGraw had run across Miltier at any point on that timeline, it would have been communicated between the both of them. But that never happened. And by this time, Adams, some 30 years later, now became aware of this telegram and knew that it was patently untrue because no one of those three men had seen Miltier in equipment on the 22nd because he was not there. Obviously, it's hard to prove the negative. But given the extent of the search conducted by Adams, Miltier would have to have been hiding out somewhere. And what good would that have done him? That's not much for an alibi if you were really there in Dealey Plaza. While Adams has had suspicions to this day, there has never been a definitive conclusion as to who might have made the assertions that Miltier was in Quitman at the time of the assassination. Again, it certainly feels all contrived. The story of the FBI teletype sent to the FBI headquarters from Atlanta just five hours after the assassination is bad enough. It's clearly the story of a fraudulent transmission, but it gets worse. Adams began to review documents in the National Archives that he had come across. Two reports, one from Special Agent and Supervisor Charles Harding in the Atlanta office and one from Special Agent Royal McGraw from the Thomasville office. Harding's report was dated December 1st, 1963, and it covers the period from November 22nd to December 1. McGraw's report was dated January 22nd, 1964, and it covered the period of January 13th and 14th. And his report had a case title of Joseph Adams Miltier in the file. And Adams had one clear thing to say about these two reports. These two FBI FD302 reports are both fraudulent, Adams says. When you get to the meat of the matter, McGraw's report is an outright deception using the information that came out of Adams' interrogations of Miltier. McGraw was not present during the questioning of Miltier by Adams, so how in the heck could he have even written a report? And to top it off, this report uses only portions of what came from the original questioning performed by Adams. Adams would point out numerous other problems with the documents, including sloppy fabrication that resulted from photocopying over sections. But the real question was, where was Adams' original FD-302 that he himself had prepared as a result of his direct and original interrogation of Miltier? Leafing through all of the materials at the National Archives, Adams would come upon his document, his original FD-302, and by this time, it had now been altered and converted into something that was presented in the form of a letterhead 
Memorandum, or LHM, as it's known in the vernacular of the FBI. The document was now unsigned and had the date of November 29, 1963 on it, and there was no agent connected with it whatsoever. Adams could see that his original writings had been rearranged and included as a first paragraph, a description of things that Adams had never asked Miltier about during the questioning. He was seeing the forged LHM document in the archives some 44 years after his original preparation of that FD-302. What a revelation. Now, to be fair, some information that was retained was correct. (laughs) That's how he identified the document. And he states that paragraphs 2 through 6, to the best of his recollection, are correct. And they detail the answers to the five and the only five questions he was ordered to ask Miltier by Special Agent McMahon. But whoever did this was committed to cutting Adams out of the picture in terms of who actually did this work and spoke to Miltier. And there was plenty of revision to add to the suspicion of just why this had been done. There were all sorts of various alterations and permutations appearing on these falsified documents in terms of how they add more from the original data in the original FD-302 prepared by Adams and some information related to Miltier was missing. Other elements were inserted into different places and some things have just plain been altered. One alteration which clearly has an impact on the evaluation of the Outgen's 6 photo was Miltier's height. In Adams' original FD-302, he listed Miltier's height at 5 feet 8. But in both McGraw's and Harding's reports, Miltier's height is listed at 5 feet 4 inches. Adams knew that the FD-302s prepared under both Harding and McGraw's reports used some facts and information that Adams gathered, but they are not as Adams originally wrote them. The December 1, 1963 report of FBI Special Agent Charles S. Harding is titled Lee Harvey Oswald, with the character of the case listed as IS-R, which signifies Internal Security, Russia. This report has also become the reference document when official investigative bodies examine the questions around Miltier. Its 33-page report, as Adams describes it, And the full report is an odd collection of strange and fantastic accusations about the assassination and some of its main players at the end of the day. Adams believes that Agent Harding must have played an essential part in these altered reports. Harding appears to be the point man for contact with the Secret Service. And McGraw, as a senior resident agent at the Thomasville office, was required to approve and, and initial any report before it was sent out to the other office. Adams believes that Agent Harding must have played an essential part in these altered reports. Harding appears to be the point man for contact with the Secret Service, and McGraw, as a senior resident agent at the Thomasville office, was required to approve and initial any report before it was sent out to the other offices. By Adams' own admission, McGraw was one of the best report writers in the Bureau. The goal was certainly to whitewash Miltier's involvement in those threats against the president. Well, I'm hungry and it's getting late. So once again, I think it's time to take a pause and it's time to eat a sandwich. 
So join me in our continuation of this discussion in our next episode, episode 212, where we'll start by recapping in more detail just what was forged on all those documents. Forgeries that Adams discovered some 40 plus years after the assassination. And thank God he did. Thank you for listening to episode 211 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.